All right, well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for another opportunity to get together, talk about your word, talk about you, learn about you, grow in grace and knowledge of you. We just pray that you would bless this time. We pray that you would have your way, that you would open up our minds and open up our spirits and our understanding and help us each to receive something tonight, some uh, nugget of knowledge and understanding of you that's the goal. That's what this is all about, is just to know you a little bit more. And we want to do that tonight. We just ask that you have blessed this time and help us, Lord, to hear and to have ears to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, tonight we are going to talk about idolatry. Doesn't that sound like fun? Mm-hmm. What kind of idolatry? What kind is there? Well, there's the kind where you worship actual statues. And uh-huh. there's the kind where I'm struggling with relationships with people idolizing people. So, or the opposite sex. Okay. Which leads to a lot of anger because then you wonder why you don't see them as humans and then you wonder why they have faults. Okay, so we won't be talking about those things. <laughs> <laughs> so we've eliminated that. <laughs> <laughs> What is idolatry? Let's first read uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, because this gives us a good synopsis. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, They're holding the truth, but they do it in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. You see the the language here. Um, That which may be known of God is manifest in them. All right? Because God showed it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, and they're understood by the things that are made. Does this sound like God wants to be hidden and unknown, or that he wants to be known in his creation? He wants to be known. Clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, and that's us, even things like his eternal power and Godhead. This is knowable stuff. This is not intended to be a mystery. And there's no excuse. So they're without excuse. There's no excuse to not know God and his nature because that when they knew not, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man. Okay, key phrase there. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and then worshiped and served that creature that they just created more than the creator who is blessed forever. So there in a nutshell, 
is a good biblical example of idolatry, changing the truth of God into a lie, changing the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like an uncorruptible man. And where does that happen? It happens up here in our minds. God can't be changed. We can look at him incorrectly, though. So, idolatry is more than the action of worshiping a statue or a painting or a photograph or a person or another form of false god. It's primarily a matter of thought and imagination, and it involves at least one of three related errors. The first one of which is defining God as less than who and what he has revealed himself to be. That's point number one. Defining God as less than who and what he has revealed himself to be. Okay? Number two, defining God as different from who and what he has revealed himself to be. Okay? So we're defining him less than who he was, has revealed himself to be or different. And the third point is defining the creature as greater than it is in comparison to who and what God has revealed himself to be. Okay? Elevating the status of the creature. So simply stated, idolatry is thinking of God as something or someone that he has not revealed himself to be. And it's imperative that we examine God's revelation of himself in the Bible in order to identify and worship him properly. Okay? Um, there's a few scriptures here that we're not going to read, but I'm just going to mention them real quick. 1 Corinthians 8, um, about verse 4 or so, says, There is no other God but one, and that an idol is nothing in this world. It's nothing. That's what Paul says. An idol is nothing. doesn't mean anything. And yet, God does speak of idols as though they really are gods. And he's a jealous God. And he is disturbed when people worship nothing. Because an idol is nothing. And God doesn't want people to worship nothing. Okay? Worship is reserved for him. And so he's disturbed when people worship nothing. So why does the worship of nothing provoke him? The answer to that is because he has revealed himself as the only God. And he expects everyone to know that he is the only God. Remember, there's no excuse to not know that. So, um, of all of the false gods in Scripture, now Paul was the one that said, an idol is nothing in this world, but of all of the false gods recorded in Scripture, there was one that caused the, the Apostle Paul great concern. You know which one that is? Which one? Another Jesus. Another Jesus. Another Jesus. Um, somebody read 2 Corinthians. Christy, would you read that? 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through the subtly, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth, preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which we have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might bear well with him. Okay, so check out what Paul is saying here. He's talking to the Corinthians, a well-established church. This is his second letter to them, um, a church that he founded. These are his peeps. 
and they know him, they know his doctrine, they know his gospel, and he says, I fear lest by any means, just like the serpent beguiled Eve, that your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Just like Eve was beguiled, I am afraid that you guys might be beguiled too. Okay, this is the great Apostle Paul who has established this church and has indoctrinated them and taught them. Um, He taught them personally, and then he wrote them a letter, and now he's writing them another letter. And he says, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that, um, that you guys might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh, and who is that? That's somebody that comes after me. After I'm gone, after I pass from the scene, if somebody else comes and preaches another Jesus whom you have not preached, a, a Jesus that sounds a lot like the one that I preach to you, but there's something different about him. Okay, um, another uh, Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which we have not received, or another gospel which you have not received, you guys just might fall for it. That scares me, Paul said. Now, if Paul said that about one of his well-established churches, I think that we ought to pay attention to that. Okay? Because there are other Jesuses out there, and there are people that he's talking about that cometh after him that are preaching other Jesuses. They're preaching idols. And so if Paul's concerned, man, that makes me stand up and pay attention. He says, you just, you just might fall for it. So he warned us not to be led away by any means from the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many false Christs in the world and many mutually exclusive definitions of Jesus, and they cannot all be true. So we have to clearly establish an accurate definition of the person, identity, and the name of God as he has revealed himself in his words so that we can properly proclaim the one who is God and eliminate false concepts that lead people into serious error and even idolatry. What is our greatest protection from idolatry. Jesus. What about him, though? Revealing himself. That's it. Having the revelation of who he really is. That dispels idolatry. It doesn't leave any room. Once you know who he is, uh, there's no room for idolatry. That's the only guard we have against it. So let's talk about the language of his revelation here. Um, Hebrews 1, 2. Alex, would you get that? 1, 1 and 2. God, who has sounded times and in his manners, speaking time present times with the prophets, who had in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he had appointed her all things, by whom all seeking neighbors. Okay. So this is telling us here that the Lord used men who were inspired by his spirit to record and communicate his revelation to humanity. And we're limited people and limited man works with his limited vocabulary. And we have, we are limited because God imposed those limitations on us. So how then does applying human terms to define God become idolatry? Men, 
even men tainted with sin, can accurately communicate his identity, but not his character. And that's what we're talking about right here in Hebrews 1, 2. Um, actually, verse 3 is what talks about that. Um, his identity is the smallest portion of his being since it's almost entirely external. Okay? His identity doesn't tell us a whole lot about him. And what it does tell us about him is not the internal, intrinsic aspects of his being. It's just like things like a name and a title and a description, but that's all identity conveys. Um, men can also assign the same identity to that which is not God as the Hebrews did with the golden calf. Remember that story? After Aaron makes this golden calf, what did they say? They said, look, this is the God that delivered us from Egypt. <laughs> My goodness. As if they weren't there. As if they didn't see exactly how that whole thing went down. My goodness, how quickly people who had an understanding of who God was, who watched the sea part, they saw the pillar of cloud. They, saw, they were standing under the pillar of cloud and fire while this was going on, right? And they're going, look, this is the God that delivered us from Egypt. Come on now. So it's no wonder Paul warns about another Jesus. So it's when men apply their own character, however much projected into immensity and no matter how refined they make it to be in their thoughts to the identity that he has revealed that they are creating an idol in their own imagination. Cre the creation of an idol is almost always us ascribing human characteristics to God. And many times there are characteristics. The God that I can fashion looks a lot like me. He thinks a lot like me, and he favors me. It's all about me, right? Mm-hmm. The finest of men, having even once sinned, no longer share the image Adam once shared with, with the Lord, and hence they cannot be the express character of his person. That's Hebrews 1.3. But Christ, being the second man God specially formed and the last Adam, does precisely bring into the view of men not only the identity, but also the character of God. So if we look at his knowledge, we can project it from the human dimension into the infinite and see that it's God's knowledge. The same with all of his attributes. So idolatry takes many forms. It can be thinking, what was the first one? Of God as less than he really is, or thinking of God as being something or, or someone other than what he has revealed himself to be, and it can be thinking of any part of the creation as greater than it is. And this is one reason that we're told not to ascribe any authority to Satan. Um, scripture says, neither give place to the devil. Don't give him any room. Don't give him any authority in your life. Okay? Um, I'm surprised how much people talk about Satan. He gets a whole lot more uh, credit than he deserves, and he gets a whole lot more attention than he deserves. So God's revelation of himself is not merely that he is God, 
that's person, identity, and name, but also his nature, his attributes, his ways, his character, his revelation to and through uh, the men in Scripture encompassed much that men do not think is actually related to revealing him. He doesn't merely reveal himself through terminology, but through living. Remember, he's called the living God. Okay? And it's through his living that we see the revelation of who he is. He's the one who demonstrates that he is alive by direct action in his creation. You know, so much of this book right here, um, the, the five books of the Pentateuch, uh, Chronicles, Kings, Samuel, um, so much of this is history, actual living history. And God is revealing himself in that history. In his interactions with people and the way that he deals with them, he's revealing himself. So this isn't just a history book about, you know, the nation of Israel and how everything got started, creation, all that. This is God's testimony of himself revealing himself to us. He is the living God, and it's in that, that living that we discover him. So... Um, he is the one who demonstrates that he is alive by direct action in his creation. And Jesus Christ is titled the Alpha and Omega because he is the absolute embodiment of everything that God is within himself. Okay? So even the story of creation was part of his revelation of himself. And Adam, made in his image, was intended to be the revelatory manifestation of him to the rest of creation. And people mostly ignore that the intrinsic nature and character of God is as much revealed in what he does as what he says. So that's why it's good to pay attention to what he does in Scripture. And because of the sin of Adam, which was looking to the creation for fulfillment rather than the creator, right? that how that went down men lost their innate ability to discern the difference between their own thoughts and that which God intended them to know it's because of that men no longer have the capacity without the involvement of the spirit of the Lord to see the light of his revelation and distinguish it from their own thoughts and the thoughts of men, even when they refine them into what they think is perfection and project them into immensity, still fall short of the absoluteness of God's actual revelation. Even when they use the same terminology that the prophets used. Jesus Christ, though, the son of the living God, is that human being whose origin is not that of other human beings, but rather he is the word that's what we're told in John 1, which is the terminology of God's self-revelation. Uh, the word become flesh. So it's not through mere words that God communicates himself. No longer are we dependent on the divinely inspired words spoken by anointed prophets, but we have the absolute human embodiment of that life, which is the light of men, as John uh, 1, 4 says which we are going to read in a minute. Uh, so the definition of his word 
is broader than just what is written and spoken. This is what was and is lived by the life of Christ. So the problem arises when men apply their own character, however much projected into immensity and no matter how refined they make it, to be in their own thoughts when they apply their own character to the identity that he has revealed that they're creating an idol in their own imaginations. Okay? So we have the sense that we were originally created to be in his image. So projecting what we are into immensity and assuming that it represents God is a natural thing to do. It's wrong, but it's natural. So instead... What we need is to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ in the words and deeds, not just, not just in Scripture, but in the words and deeds of His people, as well as in the phenomena of their personal salvation. Okay, What did He say? Ye shall be witnesses unto me. And in Isaiah 43, He said, Ye are my witnesses. So, that is yet another testimony of who he is. The people that really know him, that belong to him, living out their lives and their revelation in the sight of other people. Um, that is when we can see that in addition to his own revelation of himself. That's when we can see that he is better than the very best of our projections. So the illumination of who he is is what eliminates idolatry. So, uh, let's read Matthew, would you get 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded, in the minds of them which believe it not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. What did he mean by lest? Hmm? When he says, which that believe it not, lest. Unless. Unless the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servant for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, there's a lot of important stuff here. How many of you ever heard um, the saying, we're only going to be judged by what we know? That's, that's a common fallacy that's taught out there in Christianity. Well, you know, God's only going to judge us by, by what we know. Sounds convenient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that is dispelled by verse 3 here. He says, if our gospel be hid... It's hid to who? The lost. Them that are lost. If the gospel is hid to you, you're lost. You're not going to be judged according to what you know. You're going to be judged by according to what was made available to you. And that was the message of Romans chapter 1, right? There's no excuse. It's been manifest. There's no excuse for not knowing God. If our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which already believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is what? The icon of God, 
should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. Does this sound like God wants to be concealed in his creation or that he wants to be revealed to his creation? For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give light, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Jesus Christ to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, um, uh, John fourteen six. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but my me. He said he is the life. All right? So the equation of life corresponding to light is easily demonstrated in Scripture. Um, Christy, would you get those verses in John 1 there? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten, the Father, full of grace and truth. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Okay, so we're talking about light, 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 and seeing, okay, because the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we what? We beheld His glory. We saw it. No man has seen God at any time. Uh, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He had declared Him. And John eight twelve, Alex. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. I am the light of the world. He that follows me is not going to be in darkness, but is going to have the light of life. Matthew John 1, uh, 12, 46. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Okay. We're talking about seeing here. Talking about seeing, having vision and understanding and seeing. Illumination. John, First uh, John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, and that means we have, we have studied intensely, and our hands have handled the word of life. For life was manifested, and we have seen it. We bear witness to show you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that we which have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This is the message we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So let's talk about light for a minute. Light is invisible. Okay? Except as it radiates or is reflected directly into the eye. So what we see, we, we see light reflecting onto one another. And, and color doesn't actually exist in the things that we see. It's in the spectrum of light. Okay? So light is invisible except as it radiates and is reflected on something. 
into the eye. And it's most often perceived as an effect on an object on which it shines. And so light is most directly an experience, not just a thing. Well, Jesus Christ being the life, being the light, is the experience of the truth of God. That's what he is saying. Okay? He calls himself the light. Okay? Only as we come to experience him can we ever know the infinite God. Okay? Darkness is a function of failing to perceive light. It's not that light is lacking, but that men are blinded to it, or that they choose rather to close their eyes to it. Um, do we have John 1.5 on here? John 1.5. Who's next? And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it. The light was shining, but the darkness didn't comprehend it. And uh, John 3.19-21. Alex? Lest his deeds should be reproved, but he knoweth the truth coming to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrong in God. Okay. Talking about light. So by closing your eyes to the light, even though it's shining right on you, even though you can be in the presence of light, you will be as much in darkness as you would be if there were no light at all. Okay? Same experience, same effect. Unbelievers deny that there is any light simply because they haven't opened their eyes to it. And Paul was commissioned by God to open eyes, not to shine the light. He shines the light. He is the light. Paul was commissioned to open eyes. Uh, Acts twenty six eighteen. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. All right. Satan cannot stop the light from shining, but he can get men to close their eyes to it or to reject it when they begin to see it. That was the message of, we already read 2 Corinthians 4, <clears throat> where he says, if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom, what's that? We did. Yes, we did. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. They already didn't believe, but Satan has blinded their minds further, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So God desires men to come out of darkness and receive the light of life. John eight twelve. Okay. It's remarkable how many verses of Scripture that refer to him as light. Matthew 4, 14 through 16. Then he might fulfill which was spoken that Isaiah's prophet saying, The land of Sabon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee and the Gentiles, the people which sat in the darkness, so great light, 
And to them which sat in the region and shadowed them like a scribe, putting Isaiah might by one basket. Light is sprung up. Yeah, that's from Isaiah. Um, Ephesians 5.14. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Christ shall give thee light, 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 light. First John 2.8. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. So only truth can be illuminated to our hearts and minds. We can be deceived by our enemy into believing lies through experiences that seem illuminating, but only truth can be illuminated to our hearts and minds. Second Corinthians uh, 11, 2 through 4, 13 through 15. Yeah. Is that for me? Um, Who read last? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Second, okay. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received or another gospel which ye have not accepted ye might well bear with him for such are false apostles deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ and no more for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works okay. so what do they mean by right Righteousness does that have the same um, Greek word, or the same or original Greek slash Hebrew word as someone who went? Because this says righteousness, but it doesn't mean actual righteousness. It means in appearance. Yeah, that's what this is talking about: is being transformed to look like something that they're really not. So it's using the same original righteousness word, or is it implied? Because I'm thinking because. Because I know sometimes the same words can be attributed to Greek or or vice versa. Word. Yeah, it. I think the key word there is as they're transformed as the ministers of righteousness. They're not actually ministers of righteousness. They're not ministering righteousness, but they appear to be. And he was talking about false apostles, deceitful workers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they're not actual ministers of righteousness, but they are, they have the appearance of it. <clears throat> so we can guard against these people uh, trying to deceive by studying a full testimony of scripture. And Second Peter chapter 1 says for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased you know what he's talking about here 
the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter and James and John went up there and the Lord was transfigured and he was speaking with Moses and Elijah and this voice boomed out of heaven and it said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Peter says, and this voice which, we, which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. Okay. Now this is, this is an important thing here, just as a side note. He says, we heard a voice from heaven. We heard God speak. We heard the voice of God, all right? But we have also a more sure word of prophecy. What does that mean? What is the more sure word of prophecy and what is it more sure than? It's not the written word, is it? Yeah, that's what he's talking about. The written word is a more sure word than a voice from heaven. Is what he's saying. So, and, and I've known people like this. They really majored on prayer and they minored on the word of God. And they heard all kinds of crazy things in prayer. God spoke all kinds of Kuchberger things to them. That if they knew the word, they would know that it wasn't the voice of God telling them that. I tried that once and it was literally just my thoughts. Why whatever thought ran through and I was convinced God sent it. Yeah. It's very convenient. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why this is so critical that we know this because Peter says this is the more sure word of prophecy. This is what we need to major on so that when we do hear those voices, we do hear those things come into our heads, we'll know where it came from. Because there's three voices that can pop into our heads, the voice of God, the voice of the devil and me. And most of the time, it's me. And Satan has his say once in a while, too. But when we know what this says, then we'll know the discernment of what's going on in our head. Uh, I didn't finish, did I? Uh, we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. It wasn't, a, uh, it wasn't of the will of man, basically. For prophecy came not uh, in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It is not from the minds of men, or the will of men, but it's from the mind of God. Okay, so this is our protection from idolatry. The revelation of who he is and the word of God is what, can, what fends off idolatry. And I'm going to stop right there. So that we can have questions. Um, when I read, when I was listening on audio book to uh, um, Paul's writings, or Paul's writing of the scripture, it sounded like a lot of it was just arguments or expanded arguments for understanding Christ. Does reading the Old Testament thoroughly help make more sense of the letters of Paul? Yeah, because 
you hear Paul say a lot of times, uh, begin something with, for it is written. So what he's doing is explaining what was there in the Old Testament. So if he was explaining what was in the Old Testament, couldn't then preachers such as today have done the same thing and then call it biblical canon? Then? Mm. Like, couldn't Brother Readout expand upon older things and then put that into the Bible as long as it doesn't contradict it? Uh, Do you understand the question I'm asking? Vaguely. Vaguely, okay. Try again. Let's see. So, okay. Ooh, good for, I could probably talk about 15 minutes trying to figure out a better way to say it. So, when I, when I was reading Paul, it sounds like they're, it sounds like commentary of the Gospels or commentary of the Old Testament more than it does actual scripture mm-hmm. itself. Which makes me question if that's the case, then couldn't, like, say someone like Brother Readout who studied for his over 100,000 hours, couldn't he then also write commentary on the Bible, and then if it was close enough to it, couldn't that be considered scripture? No. We don't, scripture, commentary is one thing, and scripture is another. Scripture is, it has been canonized, it is, it's finished. He said, don't add to this. Remember, we talked about that last week. There's, there's no need to add to it. He's given us everything that there is that, that we need. Um, it's the job of uh, Paul. It was the, Paul's mission to take, well, part of his mission maybe, take his understanding. And he was, he was an extremely learned person in the Old Testament scriptures take those and bring them forward into the New Testament because a lot of what was said in the Old Testament what wasn't really understood, sort of like when, uh, when Solomon dedicated the temple and he said, ah, but will God in very deed dwell upon the earth? How can that be? How the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built and, you know, how is that going to work? All right. So they, they, and, and David had some things revealed to him. Isaiah, they all had things revealed to them, but they didn't have the totality of the revelation. But they, they prophesied, they spoke, you know, a lot of messianic prophecy out of Isaiah And so it took somebody in the New Testament like Paul or Peter to pull those things from the Old Testament and say, okay, all you Jews, like he did on the day of Pentecost, he pulled scriptures from from Psalms and from Joel that they knew but didn't completely understand because they hadn't been fulfilled and said, let me show you the fulfillment of these things. Bam, now you understand them. You knew the verses of scripture before, but you didn't know what they meant. Now you know what they meant. Because everything, the context of Calvary and the, and the incarnation is what gave them the understanding of so much of that Old Testament scripture. So Paul was enlightening everybody, um, taking those, 
those scriptures out of the Old Testament and saying, let me, let me explain these things to you now that we have the incarnation in Calvary and you know, we, can, we can understand these things more fully. Um, but we don't need anything more than that today. So I would, and, and by the way, there are people that do um, believe they have the authority to, um, or that their, their opinions or writings actually carries the weight of scripture, and that's typical of the Catholic Church. They, uh, uh, it is considered that the Pope's word carries the same weight as the word of God. So, yes, which is a major problem. What's history that? History shows that the 